Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm the founder at the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding in Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And I'm thrilled that my guest today is Dr. Carol McBride. She's one of the leading authorities on the topics of narcissism. And she's a licensed marriage and family therapist. She specializes in treating couples, families, children, and individuals with dysfunctional family issues, including trauma and divorce. She's the author of Will I Ever Be Good Enough? Healing the Daughters of Narcissistic Mothers and Will I Ever Be Free of You? She's been featured in numerous magazines, newspapers, websites, radios, including Dr. Phil, New York Times, and so on and so forth. Welcome, Dr. McBride. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I have so many clients who think that they're married to a narcissist or worried that they're married to a narcissist. And, you know, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding out there about what a narcissist is. And, you know, obviously, we're not talking about the kind of person who gazes at himself or herself in the mirror all the time, or are we? No, I think you're right. I think narcissism is misunderstood. I think the general public still tend to see that term as someone who's just boastful and arrogant and all about themselves and all about image, which that is part of it. But what's really more important and more disturbing about true narcissism is the lack of empathy in these individuals and the inability to emotionally tune in to other people's feelings. And so I'm more concerned about the true disorder parts that impact relationships and impact children and parenting. And how does that the lack of empathy or the inability to tune into other people's feelings, what does that look like? Narcissists don't really take care of their own feelings. They have very fragile self-esteem, self-ego, very shaky and... So they cover it up with this kind of grandiosity to the outside world, but because they're not tuned into themselves, they don't know how to tune into other people's feelings, how to listen to their children and listen to their partner and, you know, have empathy and care about what's going on with them emotionally. And Dr. Carol McBride, why is it that this doesn't seem to show up in the dating phase as much as it does later on? Or am I wrong about that? No, and it's a good question because narcissists are all about winning and putting on a good show, putting on a good image. So in the dating scene where most people want to put their best foot forward, in the beginning, the narcissist overdoes it. You know, they love bomb and they can be very charming. Oftentimes they're successful, charming, seductive kind of people which they use to exploit other people. Nothing wrong with being charming and successful, but when you use it to exploit other people, that's what we see in narcissism. 
it's manipulative. And some of that manipulation, I guess, can be used what feels like for good in the dating phase, right? So you feel really desired and wanted and special and held in the sort of special esteem by this person. And then later on, when that kind of wears off, it's less charming. Yeah, they can't maintain it. So it does wear off. And it usually wears off when things don't go their way or things are not exactly the way they want them to be. They're kind of like defiant six-year-olds. And then they become mean and critical and judgmental and become emotionally and psychologically abusive to both their partners and their children. So let's get back to the divorce, the subject of the show, rather than the dating. Maybe we'll get back to it later on in the show. But when people are divorcing and one person is a narcissist, are those always high conflict situations? That's been my experience. And what usually happens, and this is actually why I wrote the second book, the primary reason, is because there's been so much trauma in the relationship, and then this the divorce is high conflict and lengthy and difficult, we have the narcissist who's being revengeful, and then the partner doesn't always present real well because of their post-traumatic stress trauma. And so one of the things I tell professionals that I work with on these cases is it's really important that these people aren't painted with the same brush, if you know what I mean, because we tend to see, and I think that the courts tend to see, you would know better than I, that if it's a high-conflict divorce and it's going on and on and on forever, that both people must just be crazy. Like, how could they do this to their kids? Mm-hmm. When in reality, if one is a narcissist and the other isn't, the other parent has to stay in the battle to protect the emotional welfare of their children. And they're oftentimes going into this with a high level of PTSD it can make it look that way, like both people, you know, are having big problems here. Yeah, one of our local judges has an expression, elephants don't marry giraffes, right? <laughs> Meaning that if one person is really difficult, then, you know, it must be that they both are. And I guess when you see one person who's a narcissist and the other one who's really suffering from PTSD, that, you know, they might act in a way they might not wish that they would act as their therapist or as their lawyer or as their friend um, because they're so locked in the, in this sort of conflict trap with the, with the other person. Is that right? Right. I can tell you, like, from a therapist's perspective, because I work with a lot of victims of narcissists, and when they first come in, when you first meet them, they can have very uh, pressured speech. They can talk really fast. They want to tell you, you know, everything. They want to make sure you understand it. They're not used to being heard. They're not used to having a voice. They're not used to being believed. And so they present with this. They can, not all of them do, but they can present with a very kind of pressured presentation. And then once they get to know you and trust you, that all settles down, you know, and also... They should always be sent to therapy to work on the trauma, of course. But yeah. that's you know, what I see. And I'm sure lawyers see it, too, because they call me Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, ask about it. 
Well, I think it's really interesting because everybody pretty much who's getting divorced is locked in a conflict trap of some kind or some degree of severity. You know, there's a conflict pattern that's developed in the marriage. And when the people are choosing to get divorced, it's obviously not working that well. And, you know, there's a a series of conflict conversations that they have that are very similar. And oftentimes people feel like, well, if my spouse just realize this, or if he or she just did that, then it would all be okay. Like with a lot of wanting the other person to do something different and realizing that the power to do something different is inside themselves. And, you know, that's a whole journey to realize that the only person who can do something to save yourself is really yourself. And I think when you're dealing with such a difficult person, that makes, that's just that much harder because it feels so scary and unsafe. Yes, absolutely. You're listening yeah. to Dialogue on Divorce. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30, or perhaps you're listening on the podcast, which is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, as well as on the podcast website at www.divorcedialogues.com. And I'm talking today with Dr. Carol McBride about narcissism and divorce and how challenging it is to divorce a narcissist, to be married, to be one, to have one be your parent. And so what does happen to the children when one parent is a narcissist, when the parents get divorced? Well, what happens to the children in these cases is they are often, as I'm sure you've seen, used as pawns in the divorce process and are a lot of times kids are caught in the middle with divorces, but in these it's horrible. The cases go on for years and years and years. Our judges here call the narcissists in these cases frequent filers because <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of motions, as you know, and they will report that every two years until the child's 18, they're back in court. You know, the narcissist has to win at all costs, and they see the courtroom as a wonderful theatrical stage for presenting and winning. And the kids are, are the ones that lose in this, you know, they're, they're caught in the middle of that. And kids want to love both parents and want to trust both parents. And they eventually, Catherine, in my experience, they eventually do end up voting with their feet in the end. They eventually do see through the narcissist as they get older. But when they're little, they don't or can't. And when you say voting with their feet, you mean they start not seeing that parent? Yeah, they just decide they've had enough. You know, they know something's wrong. And the same is true if someone is raised by a narcissistic parent. It's the same thing. The child knows something's wrong because they, they don't have a voice. They're not being heard. They're not being nurtured. They're not being given empathy. But they can't put their finger on it. Kids aren't able to say something's wrong with my parent, you know or to define it as such. So the kids end up being confused. They end up having a inability to trust themselves and their own feelings because their feelings aren't validated. They grow up with what I call crippling self-doubt because their feelings aren't acknowledged. Narcissistic parenting has long-term effects emotionally and psychologically on people. How should the other spouse, the other parent, deal with that situation in their children? 
Yes, I love that question. Thank you. Because if you think about it, empathy is the antithesis of narcissism. So what I talk about in my books is how to do empathic parenting. And you just parent with empathy. You drive the parenting with empathy. So that's the way you can kind of offset the narcissistic parent who isn't going to tune into their kids. So can you give us an example of what that would look like? You know, it's it's the opposite of authoritarian parenting. The child um, asks for a cookie, and the parent says, no, we can't have a cookie. We have to eat dinner first, and then we can have a cookie. The child then throws a tantrum and says, I hate you, mommy or daddy. The authoritarian parent who doesn't tune into feelings, does an immediate reaction, sends a child to their room, says, you don't talk to me that way. They become punished right away. Where the empathetic parent says, I know you don't hate your mommy, but let's talk about your feelings here. I just think you're mad because you didn't get the cookie right now. And I understand that, and it's okay for us to be mad, and we identify the feeling, we process the feeling, that settles the child down because they're heard, and then things work out in a, in a loving, nurturing way, not in a punitive, authoritarian way. Yeah, I think that's really a difficult parenting point, like at, for all parents, right? You get to a place where, you know, your kid should listen to you or they're just accusing you of something that's not true, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you don't love me or you'd let me have the cookie or, or something like that. And it can be, I, I think what you're saying, it can be really tempting just to sort of hold the line or deny what they're saying as being untrue. But I think what you're saying is that the empathetic parenting style would be to really allow them to have their feelings and verify, you know, affirm their feelings without necessarily affirming the behavior. Like saying, oh, all right, you can have a cookie. I don't think that's what you're saying, right? You're saying. You still have rules. You're still in charge. You still have the hierarchy. You're the parent. You're in charge. They're the kid. But, But their feelings matter, you know, who they are matters and how they feel and what they say and what they think. And, you know, all of that matters to the empathetic parent. Yeah, I think that's really, really good advice for parents, period, whether or not they're married to a narcissist or not. Yes. So I think, I wonder, you said that the kids end up voting with their feet. What age does that start to happen at, do you think? In my clinical experience, I've seen it happen when they get to be about 15, 16. Now, this is given there aren't parental alienation issues that, you know, have been going on since the beginning or something like that, which we also see. And do you think it's a good thing when they start refusing to see their narcissistic parent? I don't necessarily think it's a good thing. I'm I'm a believer in kids seeing both parents unless they're just too toxic or too abusive, of course. But sometimes what happens that is good that comes out of it is it forces some reintegration therapy and actually forces the parent who's difficult to, you know, get some help with how to communicate with their child. That's got to be really tricky, Dr. McBride, because they don't want to be wrong, right? So it forces it. So like, it's like, I can just... And we're talking about it, and I'm just thinking, well, they could just say, well, if they don't want to see me, fine, screw them. I don't want to see them either. Does that ever happen? Oh, yeah, it does happen. 
But interestingly with narcissists, if they know that the kids are the most important thing to their ex, then they hang in there and fight even when they don't want to see the kids. I mean, it's really sad. I mean, they would rather be going to court and winning. So what can be done to heal the parent and the, and the children? What does reintegration therapy look like? It's just having a, a third party, a professional there to help the child talk about their feelings and kind of teach the narcissist or difficult parent how to listen, how to do empathy. It's not always real effective in terms of changing the narcissist, but at least it gives the child an opportunity to be somewhat heard and to have a voice. And so that helps the child more than the narcissist. You're listening to Dialogue on Divorce. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 530. And we're also available as a podcast on DivorceDialogues.com. And I'm talking today with Carol McBride about narcissism and divorcing a narcissism. And Dr. McBride, if anybody wants to find out more about your work or your books or any of your uh, materials, how can they learn more? I think the best place to go for all of my resources is my book website which is www.willieverbegoodenough.com. And on the website, they will find information about both of my books and workshops and other things that I offer, as well as some free surveys to find out if, did you have a narcissistic parent? Are you married to a narcissist? And those are on the website. How did you get that phrase, will I ever be good enough? That's the message that you get if you are in a relationship with a narcissist, that you feel like no matter how hard you try and no matter what you do, it'll never be good enough. You can never measure up. And so adult children that I work with coming out of narcissistic families, they always say that. That's why it's the title of my first book. So do you think that the advice would be just stop trying? Yes, I think when we take people through recovery, they learn in recovery that they're not going to please that parent. They can try and try and try, but it's to no avail. And so, therefore, the work is all internal, and they work on cleaning up trauma internally. And if there's one parent who is a narcissist and another who's not, is there a way to rely on the non-narcissist to sort of fill in the gap in some way? Absolutely, yeah. And that's what I meant by the non-narcissist parent, you know, really using empathic parenting because that's the best tool to fight the narcissist on the other side, the effects of the narcissistic parenting. Do you think if there are people out there who think perhaps they have a narcissistic parent and they want to go to the other parent and say, listen, here's more of what I need. Is there a way to ask for that or talk about it and in a way that doesn't feel, I don't know, too touchy-feely or might be comfortable? It depends on the parents. Oftentimes in families where there's a narcissist and a non-narcissist parent and they stay together, oftentimes that other parent, in order to make the relationship work, has to be constantly orbiting around the narcissist. And so it kind of that the kids have no one to go to. 
So it depends. Sometimes the other parent is able to do that out of earshot of the narcissist. Yeah, that just sounds so horrible when I'm I'm listening to you describe a situation and, you know, just sort of the feeling of being in a family that surrounds someone who is really ill and unable to relate to people in a, and I'm going to put air quotes around this normal way, and how really challenging that is for people and, and for children. So painful. Very much so. Very much so. And, you know, I don't, I don't think I even realized it to the extent of this and how many families out there have this disorder. But when I wrote the first book, but it's now going around the world in a bunch of foreign translations and it, it's a worldwide issue. You know, it's way bigger than we thought it was. It's a huge issue in my practice. I mean, it comes up all the time, and which is one of the reasons I really was looking forward to having you as a guest on the show. And if we have people listening to this who are thinking about divorcing a narcissist or thinking, you know what, I'm really unhappy in my marriage, and I really want to get divorced, and I'm, I think I might be married to a narcissist, what advice do you have for those people? I would go to the website, willieverbegoodenough.com, take the survey, and then uh, my second book has a lot of information on should I leave or should I stay and what about the kids and how do I gather a team to support. So the second book is Will I Ever Be Free of You? How to Navigate a High-Conflict Divorce from a Narcissist and Heal Your Family. Do you think, Dr. McBride, that there is a particular like a process for getting divorced that's better than a, than another in this kind of setting it's staying out of court I, or or not staying out of court? What do you think? Oh, I always think staying out of court is best. Settlements are best, but that doesn't usually happen with a narcissist, unfortunately. Do you think there's a way to approach a narcissist about, about divorce that is maybe less provocative for that person? I hate to put it this way, but I've been doing this for a long time, and if you want to just let the narcissist have their way, have whatever they want, money, kids, houses, cars, bank accounts. Yeah, that would work, but <laughs> most people don't want to do that. I mean, and most people, of course, it's the kids that that are really most important, you know. Well, it's really interesting because as I hear you say that, I mean, if you could pretend you didn't care about the kids, you know, if you could, I mean, I'm it's getting a little bit complicated here, but, you know, it's when you say, you know, this is the one thing I care about, so it's the one thing they're going to fight on, right? Right. And have you, can you think of a success story where somebody was able to handle this particularly well? I think some of the cases go better if, well, let's see, I if someone is contemplating divorce, let me put it this way, and they, they feel very strongly that they're with a narcissist, I think going in and doing some pre-therapy and working through some of their own trauma so they're not triggered by the narcissist all the time does make it easier. And I think that's really good advice. You're talking about individual therapy for the person considering leaving the marriage, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And and working on their own reaction to what happens in the in the bad moments, so that they're in a stronger place by the time they announce their decision. Is that right? That's exactly right. So then they're not so triggered by everything the narcissist tries. You know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
That that makes a lot of sense because I think when I work with clients who are in that situation, it's really hard just to kind of get them back on an even keel just to, you know, move forward. Well, in our last few seconds, Dr. McBride, is there any other pieces of advice you have for our listeners? Um, I would say I'm all about recovery and if you're in a relationship with a narcissist or raised by one, um, go to the website, look at our resources. Um, doing your own recovery is just key, key, key to mental health. Yeah, that's super. Dr. Carol McBride, thank you so much for being our guest on Dialogue on Divorce. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Catherine.